learn more and to um, have increasing dedication. Uh, the theme I want to explore tonight is about bringing uh, wisdom and compassion to our being with our views, our interpretations, our positions, our attitudes, and so forth. And I have to say that I was partly influenced in choosing this topic by listening yesterday to the presidential so-called debate. How many of you also had that experience? Okay. How many of you are still recovering from that experience? Now, it wasn't uh, very pretty, and uh, I would say in many ways there, there often wasn't so much wisdom and compassion. And I, I was thinking about this also because um, uh, when I was in college, I worked in the U.S. Congress. And it was actually at the time a, a disillusioning experience. I was quite idealistic. And I found the person whom I thought was the most progressive member of the U.S. Congress. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> and I worked for a summer uh, as an intern while, in, uh, while enrolled in college. And what was most um, sort of tr troubling for me was the fact that the focus on re-election, of course, this was for Congress people. They're getting, what, re-elected or running every two years. The preoccupation with election was so compelling that there seemed to be a loss of focus on actually dealing with the problems of the country. <clears throat> and uh, because everything was in some kind of calculation about how this would impact on election or re-election. Now, there were some wonderful people who had deep sense of uh, the, the problems of the country in the U.S. Congress. Uh, I largely found them not to be the people who were the representatives. They were the staff members of the committees. They were quite, quite wonderful. So it was, it was a difficult experience. I also found a very large amount of polarizing speech. And often uh, not much interest, really, in understanding the views of others. And so what I want to explore uh, tonight are really two themes. One is how to be skillful with our, our views, our positions, our... Uh, ways of understanding something, our interpretations, how to be skillful because we don't so much get rid of these, but we want to know how to be skillful with them. They're part of life. And then secondly, more bringing in the heart quality is how to bring in a quality of empathy when we're working with our views, particularly when we are with others who have different views. 
and particularly when there's some tension. So I'd be giving a fair amount of attention to that. That's a, that's a huge theme probably for a lot of us in daily life. You know, because typically what happens is when there's conflict or tension, actually wisdom, compassion, empathy, and skill go out the window. Have you noticed that? Unless you've practiced a lot, and even then, it can go out the window. I remember the teacher Ramdas once saying, after whatever, 30, 40 years of spiritual practice, of course, when I'm with my family, you can imagine, of course, when I'm with my family, it's as if I had not been having 30 or 40 years of practice. Another way of saying it is, under stress, we regress. Right? So that's, those are the themes. So I'm going to try to offer some uh, practices uh, in working with views and in, in developing empathy that you can take home. So I'll be introducing several practices. I'll do them in a kind of a mini version here, but they will be ones that you can take home. And I'll be first talking about uh, working with views or interpretations, and then secondly, uh, working with empathy. And I should say that uh, when I'm talking about views, I'll be particularly focusing on more ordinary sorts of views, our more ordinary habitual views that might lead us to uh, have a political view, have a view about another person, have a view about ourselves, uh, have a generalization about the, what's happening at work and so forth, just our, our, our views of that nature. Uh, if we had more time, if we had, if we had uh, something like, uh, you know, maybe a day, I'd also bring in some attention to more subtle views because they're, they're both habitual views and they're also more subtle views. They could be views uh, about ourselves that are deep beneath the surface. They could be views that are there because of social conditioning. It could be about race or gender and so forth. And there could be deep views that we actually aim to uncover through spiritual practice, views about the self or about the very uh, nature of uh, phenomena the nature of reality. We tend to have fixed views based on our conditioning. So that's kind of the backdrop, those more subtle views. I'll be opening to those more by looking at our more habitual and gross level views. So in our mindfulness practice, we're already looking at views and patterns of thinking quite closely. And one of the first things we do in our practice is we have a, an inventory on, of the vast range of thoughts that we have. We also can, can increasingly be able to be with more direct experience, the experience of our sensations, our, uh, since being aware of the sensations in our bodies, being able to be with the sights of the world, being able to be with a sunset without being dominated by thinking. I remember that was one of my first revelations when I was first practicing, that I could actually uh, be with a sunset 
And as, as, as it's like in that uh, well-known quotation from William Blake, there was a kind of cleansing of the doors of perception that occurs with meditation, as probably most of you know, that when the mind gets quiet, we can actually be with the senses without having them be mixed with our thinking, without having uh, associations and just uh, distractions occur. We can be with the sunset. Of course, that's going to translate into being able to be able to listen to another person and be, be able to be empathic. And so we learn that ability to uh, be with more direct experience of the senses. We learn how to identify our thinking more carefully. In a way, we could say we develop the ability to be aware of our thinking and we start to have a... Um, a stance of awareness of thinking rather than being dominated by thinking. And that capacity is necessary for us to really be skillful with views. Being mindful of a view means I am not uh, caught in the view. I am not wrapped up in the view, even if sometimes I am. So I can be aware of an interpretation of how someone acted but be able to know, oh, there's that interpretation running through my consciousness, right? And so this is, this is what we learn. We learn to see, oh, that particular experience that I had yesterday has led me to having all sorts of thoughts, some of them reactive thoughts. Uh, you know, I had this difficult conversation with these people yesterday, you know, and I noticed myself having irritation, and anger, maybe sadness. And then today, my mind is generalizing. They really could use some therapy. (laughs) Should I tell them that? And then we might rehearse how to tell them that for the next 20 minutes of our meditation, right? Or we may have generalizations about how they are about uh, their nature, or we might have views about ourselves. There are all sorts of views, and in our mindfulness practice, we can start to have some uh, distance again from being caught up in thinking all the time. The Buddha's teachings on views were interesting. Um, He talked at, uh, at the same time about looking carefully at what he calls views. And that in the, there, there is actually a Pali word which is often translated as view, which is ditti, D-I-I-T-H-I. And uh, there is a Sanskrit word, uh, dristi. And so uh, those are, when you see the word view, that's a translation. And I think it really has to do with this whole uh, general field of uh, abstractions, generalizations, interpretations, could be even theories that we have and so forth, and how to work with them. And they're, they're the main approach that we find in the traditional teachings, I would say, is threefold. First, we want to be able to uh, notice views and see how they're, at their best, pragmatic. The second point he wants to make is that we really want to look out for being attached to views. 
for being really fixated and reactive around views. And he'll, you know, for the Buddha, this is actually the source of a vast amount of suffering, which is not hard to see. You know, that we can see that uh, attachment to views, which sounds like an innocent enough term, doesn't it? Attachment to views is, you know, is going to be connected with, you know, interpersonal difficulties, breakdown of relationships, uh, conflicts, war, violence, right? Ultimately. And so he's going to say we want to really be uh, light with our views, understand them as best pragmatic, but then use ones that are skillful. There are some famous uh, stories in which the Buddha uh, gives this sense of, of views being pragmatic. pragmatic. Uh, probably some of you know them. One of them is the story of the teachings as being uh, like a raft. And these uh, teachings help one to get to the other shore. But in, the, in his account of this, he says, what you don't want to do when you get to the other shore, which we can interpret as coming to freedom or greater freedom, what you don't want to do is to carry the raft on your back. This is his metaphor for being attached to views. So we see, we see a lot of people at Spirit Rock walking around with rafts on their backs. It's kind of the occupational hazard of being a serious spiritual practitioner. <laughs> a lot of rafts, you know. Um, so that, that, is, that is really the, the core teaching. There's another very famous story of uh, when the Buddha visited uh, the people of a, a cross town, a crossroads village in India called uh, Kesaputta. And the people who lived there were called the Kalamas. And the Kalamas were, I, I like to think of it as something like the people who live in the Bay Area, meaning that they continually had an influx of spiritual teachers, one after the other, you know? Probably even this evening, you could have chosen to, uh, you know, go to an introductory seminar on Tantra <laughs> or go to this meeting or possibly go to the Giants game. <laughs> Another deep spiritual practice, especially at this moment. <laughs> and uh, you get the idea. They're all, and especially on the weekends, you can go to, you have your choice of a hundred different spiritual pursuits. And the people of Kesapuda were in this fix. And they came to the Buddha and said, why should we believe what you say? How do we make sense of things? What do we do? There are so many teachings and so many teachers. What do we do? Now, this is where he said something very interesting. It's really pointing to the ultimately pragmatic nature of views. What he said was this. Um, Don't believe what I'm saying because it comes from tradition. That's 2,500 years ago. Don't believe something because it's a matter of religious tradition. Don't believe it because it came from a particular teacher, even me. Don't believe it because it's logically coherent. But rather, he said, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are, trust, are blameworthy. 
These qualities are criticized by the wise, or I'm sorry, unskillful. These qualities, when adopted and carry out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, um, let me see where my quote went, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter in and abide in them, remain in them. So he's basically saying, uh, check it out yourself. Decide on what are skillful views by how they aid you in your lives. Very, very pragmatic. And he's also then going to point out that the main problem with views, even with good views, this was a comment he made uh, in reference to the raft. He said, we should not be attached even to good views, let alone bad views. <laughs> and so, again, a main theme is going to be look at where there's attachment to views. And when you look in more detail in the teachings, you can find a number of different kinds of teachings that he points to where there can be, where there can be attachment. So he points to being attached to spiritual views, being attached to rites and rituals, being attached, you can imagine the whole set, you know, the whole set of ways that there can be attached, uh, there can be attachment. And he's basically also saying that because of the pragmatic nature of views, we actually can't know and we can't put into language anything about ultimate reality. That language is at best a pointer to what is pragmatically useful. So this is going to be very helpful for us when we look to our own views. How much are we, in terms of our own views, attached to them and believe they're the ultimate truth? And even if we don't say so, how often do we act as if that's the way, <laughs> the truth? particularly when we have differences with others that appear. And so he pointed to views about rites and rituals, views about uh, ultimate reality, which he criticized. And he talked about views about self. He said there were 20 different subtle and gross views about ourselves, which we can have. And I would, I would add again, that there are all sorts of views. There are political views, there are everyday views, there are spiritual views, there are psychologically based views that we have. And what we want to do is to keep on looking at these and keep on examining them. And as we look at the gross level views, we'll start maybe to see the more subtle views. So a few practices that can help us really explore uh, explore views and interpretations. Um, the first is to, in our ordinary mindfulness, keep identifying when they're views. Be aware, particularly when we get attached to views. Be aware of how our experiences will lead us to have certain views. How much do, how often do we generalize on the basis of scant experience to reach some firm view, a story, 
Uh, this is from my uh, friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia wanted to do a retreat at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And so she called up the uh, person who and person answered the phone, who was the person who answered most of the phones initially for the San Francisco Zen Center. And Sylvia said, I want to do a retreat. And um, the person uh, who I'll call uh, Susan, Susan answered, um, well, you want to talk to Steve, but Steve is not in the office now, so call back in about three hours. He should be there. Sylvia calls back three hours later, reaches Susan, and Susan says, oh, I'm really sorry. Steve just walked out. But you can call him tomorrow morning. He should be in, you know, just call at 10 tomorrow morning. So Sylvia calls at 10 the next morning, reaches Susan. Oh, I'm really sorry. Steve is caught in traffic this morning. You know, you'll have to call later. At which point Sylvia says, I think this means that I'm not supposed to do this retreat. So you notice a generalization forming, a view forming from a little bit of evidence. And Susan, with proper Zen training, responds, no, I think it means that Steve isn't here now. <laughs> So we want to track. We want to track our views. It's a fascinating study. You can watch how generalizations appear out of nowhere as if they're completely true when we've had two experiences. Right? We do that with people. We do that with all sorts of things. We want to track that. We want to really study. Notice the genesis of views. You know, and some of this is humorous, like in that example. And of course, a lot of it is at the basis for what we call implicit bias. You know, and it's, and it's less humorous. It's where actually we, we form generalizations about people in certain groups, whether it's because of gender or because of race or because of age and so forth. And, and these are some of the more subtle views. But we can sometimes notice that they're sometimes based on some experience, but it's limited. And a lot of it, of course, gets conveyed uh, generationally and in the media and so forth. So you see this, this question of views opens up to a lot of uh, deeper questions. So we can be with our mindfulness and we can just study. Study how your thinking works. Think, study how we, you generalize based on certain experiences. Notice what happens if you have a pleasant experience and there can be thinking that's more a kind of grasping, you know? You can notice it here. You can notice a pleasant sight. Oh, I like that person's outfit. I'll have to ask that person. I'd like to get that. Maybe I can go shopping tomorrow. I think I'll line up my day tomorrow. And, you know, and then you're missing all my comments about views <laughs> as you're developing your own. Um, and so... We want to watch that, or we watch just how, when there is some, something pleasant, views develop. Also, especially, notice what happens when something unpleasant occurs, with a person, with a situation, maybe with a debate. You had some unpleasant experiences, perhaps. And views develop, right? And again, the question is, we want to be skillful with views and watch out for attachment. So that's one practice, which is really to track them, particularly look for how they are generated 
by some of the raw material of our experience. That's a matter for everyday mindfulness. Okay? Sometimes when you notice a view, you can sometimes track it back that way or watch it. A second practice is to uh, make a list of your top five or your top ten views. This can take, you know, this could be something you do for the next week. Really track your views. Notice the ones that uh, occur the most. Then, of course, notice whether there's attachment. Okay. You can be attached to fantastic views. Right? That's the thing. So it's the attachment which is always going to be the issue. The attachment means I grasp onto it, often driven you know, by unpleasant or by pleasant experiences. So find your top five, your top ten views. Study them. See where there's attachment. Watch what it's like when you're attached to views. What does it feel like? What happens when you're in a conversation and you notice yourself uh, maybe going to a view with a little more attachment? What's that like? What's going on in your mind? What's going on in your emotions? Study it. This is, this is how we investigate this area. And then a, uh, a third practice is a little more advanced. This is to take differences of views with another person as a starting point for practice. Now, this is a, this is a, a wonderful practice. Uh, I first learned this kind of practice um, when I was involved with a project called Revisioning Philosophy. A long time ago, in a past life, I taught for seven years as a philosophy professor at universities. Very interesting. And one of them, I just was thinking, one of them I actually spent time talking with a lot of people who had very different political views. There were people who were, who were um, uh, in the political science department who all came from the University of Chicago and, and were neoconservatives, you know, of the same stripe as Donald Rumsfeld and people like that. And I had, I had lunch with them a lot. Anyway, that's, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But uh, this, this area, I, I was part of this project uh, which was trying to go back to the roots of philosophy and wisdom. Literally, philosophy means love of wisdom, as many of you know. Love of Sophia, who's the goddess of wisdom. And, you know, many of us had experienced in universities that philosophy became overly technical and... Um, shall I say, uh, I don't know, the word that was coming to mind was anal, <laughs> which I hope is appropriate for Dharma seed, but um, <laughs> basically really picky on small stuff and losing the big picture, losing the wisdom perspective, also losing connection with it being practical. It got very technical and professional. And some of you may have experienced that in your, in your college uh, experience. And so we had a group of people who were wonderful, included Houston Smith, included uh, Jacob Needleman, some of you know from San Francisco State, uh, Susan Griffin was part of it, uh, Charlene Spretnak, some of you know, and uh, some wonderful people involved. It was a three-year project. And one of our first meetings, it may have been the first meeting, all these wonderful people who wanted to connect using concepts skillfully with spirituality and with being practical and connecting the mind with the body and the emotions and all this wonderful aims. 
And guess what? We noticed when we started talking with each other that we had different views and that many of these wonderful people started to act not so differently from all the other people who were not so wise. In other words, they seemed to get attached to their views, combative and polarized, right? And so at that point, there was a, a friend, some of you know Robert McDermott. Anyone know Robert, who was president of uh, California Institute of Integral Studies uh, uh, for, for some years? And Robert made a suggestion which really uh, landed with me, which I've used as a practice. He said, take noticing a difference of views as the starting point for inquiry rather than the starting point for war. Meaning, notice the different views in a discussion with someone. Notice that there are differences. Notice your tendencies to polarize, to be combative. Notice that. Study that. And then ask yourself a series of inquiry questions. Could be, um, why am I so reactive with this view? Is there something in my personal history that makes me this way? What am I feeling now? What are my emotions? What are my associations, my further thoughts? Is there possibly something I could learn from this person with a, um, an interest in the answer being yes? Or another way we could say it, what can I learn from this person? And so forth. And it's an amazing practice. I, we're, that's one of the practices I'll invite. The first practice being just to notice the generation of views, thoughts, generalizations. The second practice being to uh, identify your top five or ten and notice, notice attachment. This third practice being to have a starting point difference in views. This is harder, of course, and something that's occurring in the moment. It's also a practice you can sometimes come back and do maybe at the end of the day and just reflect. What was going on? I had this discussion. It got polarized. What was going on? And it's, it's uh, really, there's a lot of potential there to open up to other people's views. And it starts to bring us into the territory that we might call empathy, which is a fundamental quality that we really want to connect with our working with views, and particularly being with others' views, and be, particularly being with views that uh, are different than ours. Views, opinions, generalizations, all sorts of things. If the U.S. Congress were well-trained in empathy, it'd be a different country. And empathy essentially means, as many of you know, the ability to tune in to another person's experience. It's actually an innate quality that we all have. You know, it's rooted in the way our brain normally works. There's a lot of research on empathy that uh, has identified uh, different kinds of what are called mirror neurons. Maybe some of you know of this research. And uh, there seem to be ways that we can be empathic about people's feelings their emotions, and that seems different when they do the research from the ability to be empathic towards someone's thinking and mindset. 
it's interesting. I mean, they've done a lot of research of that. And some people, for example, are um, deficient in one of those kinds of empathy, but not in another. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And one can also have a sense of resonance at the level of the body, a kind of body-based empathy. So there seem to be these different forms of empathy. Essentially, it's the ability to tune in to another person's experience in each of those modalities. It's a natural capacity that you can see with young children. And it kind of gets conditioned out of us. There's very interesting research that shows that women generally are more empathic than men. We don't know all the reasons whether some of them maybe have to do with social conditioning. Some people speculate that all the centuries where women were the designated caregivers actually resulted in certain uh, evolutionary changes from a biological perspective. And a lot of the research has shown that women often have more mirror neurons in their brains. It's interesting, isn't it? That being said, empathy can be trained. <laughs> so, uh, and, and it can be really uh, developed. Empathy is really related to this deep human need to be understood, to be heard, to be met, to be seen. It's one, it may be the deepest aspiration that we have to really have that sense of being known. And um, empathy can uh, really have that quality. There's a, there's a beautiful quotation from Carl Rogers, which he says, when someone is really hearing me, it feels damn good. This precise quotation. You know, that is something very, very deep about uh, about the um, way that we feel when we feel heard. And of course, when there are differences of views or when there's reactivity or conflict or judgment, empathy generally goes out the window. You can know that, you know. You can know when you feel judgmental towards another person, generally you'll find that you are not really empathic. You're not really treating that person as a human subjectivity, worthy of respect. And we can know, and we know what that feels like, right? We know what that feels like when we don't get empathy and we want it in a situation when someone doesn't listen to us or we're not listened to. And it's a very, it's a very rough experience, right? It's often it's an experience of disconnection. You know, empathy is ultimately about connection. Again, it's wired into our brains, and it's a natural innate quality that gets covered over by conditioning. But it's something that we can uh, train for. It's something that we can uh, develop in. And there's some very wonderful, simple practices that we can do. Um, a major part of empathy practice is having the intention to be empathic. Intention, is, as we know in Buddhist practice, is really, really crucial. We want to have the intention to tune into another person's experience, to try to tune into the emotions, to the thinking, to what the person is feeling. That can go a long way. So this could be something that you do as a regular practice. And for some of us, this may be natural. Probably as a parent, 
being empathic is, is rather natural. You don't have to say, let me have the intention to tune into the emotions of my newly born child, right? It's kind of natural. But as we, get, as we deal with grown-ups, sometimes intentions help, right? They don't seem quite so lovable. So, so we can have that intention. It can also be, it can also, we can also bring in the quality of curiosity and the, the interest in listening. Empathy depends on curiosity. Can I be curious about this other person's experience? You know, it's something, again, when we have different views, often there's no curiosity, we just take a position. So if we, when we actually practice empathy, as in that last exercise I did, there are ways that we can really break through the polarization of views. And we can do it, we can do it either with another person, who, and we're both doing it, or we can do it on our own. Because even when another person is locked in a view, if I'm empathic towards the other person, I can connect with that person. And at times, the person, by feeling the empathy, will feel connected and will give, off, give up the attachment to the view. It's quite interesting. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I was thinking of an experience that I had when I and a group of people went to Los Alamos National Laboratory to do a kind of a, a retreat. It was a retreat in which we were wanting to question nuclear weapons, which most of you know are built at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we were in a small group of people. It was an inter- interfaith group. And uh, they gave us permission to do this retreat at Los Alamos, which was, which was good. But they said, you, you can't use our bathrooms. <laughs> So we developed these yogic techniques of... No, no, it's not true. <laughs> um, but what we did do is we rented a Cruise America RV, and we, uh, which had a bathroom in it, and it also provided shade in the summer in New Mexico. And we did, we did our retreat, and we sat in the park. They let us uh, meet in the parking lot, but they also permitted us to go to lunch in the main cafeteria. And so every day, all of us who are generally definitely questioning nuclear weapons in different ways, we went and we talked with the technicians and the nuclear scientists every day. And it was interesting because among our group, and then what we would do, we were all camping out at a campground about two or three uh, miles out of town. And our process was we would have a retreat like from nine to five with lunchtime. And then we'd go uh, back uh, to our campsite for dinner and kind of debriefing. We, we would have, we'd have a council, you know, we'd have this council where we talk to each other. We use the mechanism of the talking stick, you know, some of which comes from indigenous tradition, which is relevant in, at least in Berkeley, it's Indigenous People's Day. Is it that way in Marin? Yeah, very good. And so we would, uh, <clears throat> we would meet together, but we found that, that day, the days we were talking with the scientists, about half the group got into polarized discussions of people with different views, leading in predictable directions, right? And about half of us listened more. And it was really interesting. I, I was one of the group that listened. <laughs> and, and it was really interesting because I was just trying to really, I was curious. And what, what was interesting, even without prompting anything, 
I mean, I think they knew who we were and that in some ways it was questioning nuclear weapons. But without prompting, almost every time the people I had lunch with, they went to some justification of why building nuclear weapons was, was right. And they talked about it. And they talked about what was important for them and dear. And it was really interesting just to listen and to actually to connect, I, I realize now, empathically around what was important for them. You know, I remember one person said, well, we're a good country and it's better for us to have the weapons than other people, than other countries. You know? And people talked about safety, which is certainly a legitimate uh, need. And it was very interesting just to connect with people with quite different views. And actually we found as they were listened to, they, some of them, became interested in my views and were open to them. If we had just gone in and immediately butted heads, that wouldn't have happened, right? So these, this quality of listening, so crucial. Curiosity is crucial for empathy. And then there are also some techniques, which I'll, which I'll mention. Um, I, I often teach uh, retreats on wise speech or mindful communication. We have a lot of emphasis on empathy. And we use some of the techniques that, that are... Uh, particularly uh, inspired by the discipline of nonviolent communication developed by Marshall Rosenberg and others. How many of you know of those approaches? So quite, quite a number. And what we like to do for an empathy practice is just very simple. We ask people to tune in to what's the emotion and what seems to matter for the person. Those two things matter what matters to the person, for those of you who know nonviolent communication, is a translation of the category of need in that system. So I'm going to do a little bit of practice now, and I want you collectively to, to give me empathy. So this is great. You know, I have like a whole room of people are, are, I'm asking to give empathy. And, but this is a practice. I want you, as I'm going to talk for like a minute or two, and I want you to tune in empathically to my emotions and there might be several of them, and to what seems to matter for me, okay? And remember that emotions, we want to be clear. When we teach, we actually give people sheets with like 50 emotions, and you can kind of look at them and, you know, become more literate in identifying a great variety of emotions, which most of us don't have that literacy. And then also we do the same thing for the sense of what matters. So we have our list. So emotions, remember, we want to differentiate, differentiate emotions from thoughts. Okay. So emotions would be sadness, anger, contentment, joy, happiness, and so forth. Okay. Maybe not necessary to say, but I wanted to, to say that because we find that, um, we actually find that having these sheets is helpful. Okay. So I'm going to speak for a minute or two and then I'll take some um, responses. And at that point, we, we'll use the mic if someone, if someone if we have a, a mic that someone can help with. We can have that ready, okay? So I'm going to talk about, um, <clears throat> I'm actually uh, on sabbatical now, and I'm working on a book called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. And I, every morning, I work for three hours. And it's mostly flowing pretty well, and it's just really wonderful to go back to this experience of creativity in a sustained way. And, you know, creativity means I have new ideas at three in the morning. I 
wake up and say, oh, I write something down, you know, the key to some intuitive issue in the organization of my book that's not resolved or, you know, and the creative process, it just integrates everything, you know. You know, I listen to the debate and I have ideas for my book and, you know, and so forth. So, okay, cut. Okay, so um, first I want you to identify, just we'll get a few people. So this is a practice you can do in daily life. You can do it watching television. You watch it, you know, watch the news and be empathic, you know, and so forth. So anyone want to name? Maybe if you, maybe, I don't know if it's easier. So you can bring, raise your hand. We'll just take three or four. So um, emotions, please. Just name one or two emotions. Joy, okay. What? Excitement, right. Exuberance, right. Any others? Friendship, what? Friendship. Friendship. See, that's, that's probably more of what matters, right. But it might be maybe kind or friendly might be, might be in there. Uh, what? Delight, right. So, so this is great. See, for me, I didn't even know I had those emotions as I was speaking. But you see, you're tuning in, and I think all those were accurate, right? Those are, you know, um, it's not hard, it's innate, right? And then the sense of what matters. Creativity. Creativity, yeah, creativity. Some of it I kind of said, some of it probably I didn't say explicitly. What else? Success. Success matters. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Please. What? Productivity. Yeah. Productivity matters. Yeah. As I was saying, I'm, it's been moving along well. Please. Being engaged. Being engaged. Yeah. 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 Purpose. Purpose. I think this is happening when I move. Yeah. I won't move. Okay. Curiosity matters. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, see, everyone did it great, right? Uh, it's not hard, but, but the, what's hard is to have the intention to do it, right? It's innate for us. And, and it's incredible practice because it's, it's really about connection and understanding. And again, it meets this deep, deep need that all of us have. And so what I'm pointing to is this um, investigation of views and then bringing it together with empathy, particularly where and we can do that where there are different views. Now, you can practice the empathy right now. Uh, you can do, take that home, and you can do it with completely ordinary activities. You can say, how was your day? And you can tune in and do empathy practice, and you may or may not report it, right? But you can do the practice. You can just uh, be with someone at work and tune in empathically. And what you'll find is it's connective. You'll find it's very hard or almost impossible to have attachment to a view and empathy at the same time. So empathy is actually a way to cut through attachment to views. Interesting, right? So what I'm pointing to are these multiple practices for working with views that I've mentioned, understanding views, and then connecting with the heart. It's really connecting the wisdom that sees views clearly with the heart qualities of empathy. Develop it yourself, develop it in your family, community, and then make it mandatory training for every politician. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
So we have some time, a little bit less than 15 minutes, for any questions, discussions, uh, uh, comments? Let's see, so what, uh, do people go to the mic or do we just hand that around? What's our process for that? Well, so raise your hand, hi, and I'll get a kind of a cue. We have one, two, three. Okay, so first uh, person with the red shirt here. Okay, we'll try this out. So last week, our teacher, Richard Shankman, had made a point about the person is sort of like the pole in the middle, and there's a circle around them with all their experiences, and it applies to the whole concept of social justice. And he quoted the serenity prayer, like, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and there's no difference. But I think the point was, his point was to widen that circle, Mm-hmm. that circle of what you know. And then I think it ties into what you're saying about tapping into the other people's experience. Yeah. And that would help widen the circle. And because the thing that's on my mind and what we've been talking about is we feel powerless to affect things in a larger scale. We feel powerless about our national politics, international famine, mm-hmm. overpopulation, war, all the things that are not right with our, our planet. And, and so sometimes you give up hope. You say, oh, I can't change that, so I'm just going to hard my heart about it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can say, oh, I'm just going to worry about it, but we can't change it, so then you just get stressed out about it. So I yeah. think the thing is to not give up hope that we can expand our circle of things that we can change. You know, that is what drives me, yeah. is yeah. that I think I can make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I could, could talk for a long time, but I, uh, just two thoughts initially. Uh, one is that I think you're, I think the metaphor of widening the circle is a beautiful one. And, and um, empathy is a core tool of peacemakers, you know, and it's, it's used. And it's, it's, it's you know, Thich Nhat, Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a phrase where he says the role of the peacemaker is to bring the suffering of one side to the other and then to bring the suffering of that side back to the first side. So it's a kind of, you know, compassion requires empathy. You know, empathy is a little bit more all-purpose. It can tune in to experience whatever it is. Compassion is tuning in to what is uh, difficult or distressful. And compassion also has an active side of responding, whereas empathy is more receptive in all its dimensions. So this notion of being able to tune in to others and expand the view, it's, it's a core tool for peacemakers. It is um, it's not the basis for essentially for any human relationship. It's a, core, it's a core capacity. And to widen one's view, I mean, one can deliberately widen one's view in terms of uh, being empathic towards people you might not normally be empathic towards. Could be people with different political views. Normally, we're also more, way more empathic towards people close to us, you know, in our family, our friends, and so forth. It's very hard to be empathic towards people in Syria. It's very painful, right? There's a lot of pain, but we tend not to be empathic towards people far away. You know, unless, and of course, that's why certain images 
or stories can touch us very deeply. So the second piece I was thinking of in terms of the question of hope and hopelessness, it was something that I was thinking about in relationship to the work of Joanna Macy. How many of you know her work? She's a great, great being of our time. And she's a, a good friend and been, been, been one of my mentors. And Joanna has a model of how large-scale change occurs. She talks about the great turning. And she says there are three main ways that change occurs. One is that people do what she calls holding actions to prevent uh, further damage. That's the traditional area of protest. You go against damage that's being done. It's important. A second area is changing the basic institutions. So this could mean, you know, changing the nature of community agriculture for education for your children, changing the core institutions. That has to happen. It's not just happening at the level of protest or at the level of elections, but it's this large-scale transformation of institutions is just as intimately connected. And then the third area, she says, is changing consciousness. For there to be a different culture and a way of responding to our problems, we have to have all three levels happening. And doing empathy practice and having that be stronger, doing practice with views, is a way of building a different culture, you know, which I think most of you are doing in some ways, right? And this is necessary for change. If you just work at the level of elections or protests without building a different culture, it's not going to do much. Right? So how do you have a culture of kindness and empathy and wisdom? That's what I think we're up to. And it's totally... Now, what I found in working with people, people could hear that, but the other piece that I found really crucial is that all three are connected. And all three are connected, the three kinds of change... And what you have to see is see where your gifts are and where you're drawn, but remember that all three are connected. That's really crucial. Thank you. Uh, I think it was right here, please. And then the next one will be also in the front row. Thank you for your talk tonight. You're welcome. Um, My professional life has been spent in hospitals. Uh dealing with families when something very bad is happening. Oh, yeah. And I have often um, walked into a room um, setting the intention of being the anthropologist. Yeah. You know, because I want to be curious. I want to have empathy and compassion and release judgment at the door. Yeah. Not to let people off the hook for violent expression or bad right. behavior, but um, to be able to work productively with people. Um, but tonight, when you were talking about empathy and you led us through the exercise, um, you um, had delight, you had effusiveness, you had um, joy, and I think it becomes... Okay, I think I moved. (laughs) I think it becomes harder to have empathy and to identify um, what's going on for the other person 
when there is negative energy. Right. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that um, when we experience negative energy, it's so easy to close up, right. to be guarded, to retreat, to be even hurt mm -hmm. because we're surprised. Right. You know, I, me, for myself, I expect and I want to believe that people can behave better than they do. Right. And so when they surprise me, um, I become astounded and I feel deep sorrow. Right. Um, and, and I really want to transcend that so that I can identify what's going on for that person behind their behavior, behind their actions, behind their words. Right. So I wonder if you could even perhaps lead us on an exercise. I'm, I'm not sure because you're so kind. You know, you'd have to, like, step outside of that to... Yeah. yeah to... Well, let me, let me say a few things. Okay. Okay. Um, I think you brought out a, a lot there. And just one, one point in passing I wanted to make is, you know, partly because of time, I didn't go into a lot of the subtleties. But... Uh, I didn't talk about the distinction between uh, attachment to views and commitment to views. I think one can have very strong commitment, but it's not the same as attachment. Partly how we hold it, you know, uh, attachment's tight. One can be committed in a much uh, broader view or a looser way. And there's also the motivation is different. So that's a point I could go further with, uh, but it's an important one. Now... Um, what I found is that uh, what you're describing is advanced empathy practice. Okay? And like any practice, we want to start with the foundations. And so I think if you can work to develop empathy as well as a lot of other uh, qualities in a not-so-problematic setting. It sounds like you probably have a range of experiences, and sometimes there's that tension and so forth, and sometimes there's not. But I think that, for example, doing something like that practice which I gave, cultivating empathy just in ordinary, non-tense situations, over and over again, builds the muscle. And it'll be more likely to be there in the, in the difficult situations. When I, when I teach, I often use the metaphor of degree of difficulty, like Olympic divers. And I say it's really important to know the degree of difficulty of the situation you're in. Practice, you know, on a scale of 10, practice in the 1 to 6 range. The situation you're describing are probably 8, 9s, 10s, okay? So just to know, to know that really helps. That being said... Um, some of this, with the difficult situations, you can do after the fact. Again, this is sort of a way you build up to it, is that you can uh, have the situation, maybe you, maybe you had it at work earlier today, and it's the evening, and you do a meditation, and then you say, I'm going to do empathy practice, but I'm going to do it related to that earlier situation. So you don't have the tensions of that immediate situation. This is a way kind of to build the capacity. But you say, let me tune in empathically to what I sense were the emotions and the sense of what mattered for this person and that person after the fact, in reflection, you know? And that will, 
that, that actually can be, you know, if it's an actually maybe not a professional situation, but an interpersonal situation, it can be extremely freeing because often in interpersonal situations, the situation maybe there was the tension, the friction, the different views, and our minds, you know, may go off for two days on that, right? And so when you do something like this empathy practice later in the day, you can actually cut through that proliferating tendency. Um, because that's based essentially probably the proliferation usually going to be based on feeling hurt or pained in some way or confused. So a lot of this is developing the muscle so that you can do that. I mean, some of it helps by uh, going into the situation and knowing that it's likely that this is going to occur. You know, so you're a little prepared for a difficult situation. Um, Sometimes, um, I mean, there's a lot that could be said. I, I've actually done weekends on like being with difficult emotions and conflicts and so forth. So there's a lot, lot that could be said. One or two other points that occur to me are um, sometimes if you yourself go in with good intentions and warmth and openness and then, in a sense, feel ambushed, which is like what you were describing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, there's advance. The comment was about family or people in the presidential debate. Opening up empathy in itself can be painful, right? Right. And so, but I was going to say that one thing to do is if you're in a situation where you go in with a sense of empathy and you're kind of, at least in the moment, overwhelmed by the situation, sometimes you can take a break and come back to center and give yourself empathy. One of the things I didn't mention this is a very important place for giving oneself empathy. You know, that, you know, if, if one uh, needs it, you know. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a tool to somehow regroup, which can be done in five minutes or ten minutes or two days. Regrouping can be helpful. Um, again, it's going to be practicing and kind of moving up to the most difficult situations. Maybe that's a, a good way to to end that comment, because it, you have to work up to it. And so consciously know the degree of difficulty and work up. And some of, them, some of these you can deliberately choose to work up, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, let me end with your question, and then we'll, I think we'll be, we'll be at time. <clears throat> it's kind of experiential and also a question. Um, I've been a political social activist for decades, and, and I realized so much of the polarity of it because I did a lot of work around Central America where it was, you know, break down good and evil. You know, a situation where because something was happening, because of U.S. involvement, thousands of people were dying. So a lot of my experiences, or I'm a public school teacher, yeah. you know, we're looking at the death of public education. Yeah. So it's really been hard because, you know, it seemed like right or wrong, right or wrong, and, and trying to create that empathy when it seems to be so starkly black and white. Yeah. And yeah. that, that's one thing, but um, it's a I small also... small matter. <laughs> if, sorry, what? Yeah. A small matter. Yeah, small matter. Yeah. But I, wanna, I also want to ask you a question, but also bring in a, a great experience, which has made me reflect. I think I heard this 10 years ago. Um, I, I think it was on a documentary. I heard this great story by Noam Chomsky. Oh, yeah. I think most people know Noam Chomsky. 
Okay. Well, anyway, Noam Chomsky tells this great story, and it has so much, when you think and reflect on it, when you were talking, it made me really think of this story where there was this protest, it was in the East Coast, where a bunch of young social activists, young students, college students, went to the CEO's house um, in, in New England, and he was like the CEO of General Electric of some department that was manufacturing machine guns yeah. that are responsible for the death of thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. So in their view, this was an evil person, right? And also not really uh, capable of much empathy because he was basically, you know, supporting this death machine. So they go out to his house, and it's a very hot, hot day. And all of a sudden, the CEO comes out with all these refreshments and tea and serves, serves the students. And so all of a sudden, this is a man with great empathy. So it was depending on the structure, you know, with the structure of his worth... He doesn't seem like a person is not capable of empathy. But when he comes on a human basic in front of his house, That's right. he's able to really be, mm-hmm. have empathy towards his, for the student, and they, reversely, had empathy for him. So yeah, yeah, I just yeah. thought it was interesting to reflect on the different structures in empathy. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot in both of your points. Um, yeah, yeah, what to do with situations that seem very uh, starkly right or wrong, you know? And where does where does this understanding of views and and um, empathy come in? I think I think it relates to what I was mentioning just a little while ago about the difference between attachment and commitment. And you know, again, it's a large issue. I could say a lot, but uh, I think we always want to be watching out for attachment to views because attachment to views implies for us that we have the whole truth. There's nothing more to learn. It's the end of the picture, and that's never the case, even if there's a clear moral question, right? And so uh, when, you, you know, when you look to people, you know, people who I respect the most as sort of spiritually grounded activists like Gandhi or King, you'll find something like that over and over again. You'll find a willingness to um, question their own strategies, Right? And to be, you know, as well, of course, they have a deep sense of, like the Dalai Lama says of the Chinese, my friend, my enemy. Right? There's this, you know, because it's, or like King has the notion of the beloved community, which includes everyone, as the final goal. Right? It's It's a very lofty aspiration, and yet he was also working with very stark, uh, issues of right and wrong, right? And so you, if you study these people's lives, you'll see a lot there of, of kind of untangling this. The, the notion of empathy, I think, is also, it's really, it's really connected to the sense that this quality that we develop in our practice of the wise and kind heart actually is the potential of everyone. And ultimately, we, we can have someone as an opponent, but we don't write off that person as a human being. We can choose to act in a certain way, but we don't, you know, some people say it's like you may, uh, you don't, you don't, uh, you try, again, you try to not uh, take the person out of your heart. And of course, there, as in the earlier question, there are all sorts of levels of degree of difficulty. You have to work up to it. You know, for a lot of us, we put people out of our hearts who just mildly irritate us. <laughs> right? How are you going to work up to, you know, people committing atrocities, right? right? How do you do that? So it's, um, again, the situation you're describing to bring uh, 
to bring uh, non-attachment to views and empathy into those situations, that would be very advanced practice because they're, they're hard situations. So we work up to it. But I think, I think again, I find that, that understanding of degrees of difficulty really helps a lot because we can see certain situations as just really, really hard. And we learn the foundational capacities where things aren't so hard or confusing, right? And that's, a, that's just a basic principle of learning that's really, really crucial. It's the same way that we develop mindfulness in protected environments. You know, we don't say, you know, don't come to Spirit Rock. Go to downtown San Francisco during the rush hour and practice mindfulness. I don't think the invitation to come to Spirit Rock is entirely out of self-interest of those who teach at Spirit Rock. <laughs> so, but it's a great question. So these are all really wonderful um, inquiries just to keep going on. But, you know, so there's a deep sense that every being has this essence of wisdom and kindness. And, even, you know, and again, with some people, that's very, very hard to contemplate that very, very hard or potentially impossible at the mo- in the moment for some people, right? Yeah, the stories are coming to mind, but I think I'm going to... I mean, a lot of it is really um, making this continual commitment to uh, have the practice be everywhere. I'll, maybe I'll end with that. That's the gift of our practice, is that everything is potentially workable. That's it. Everything is potentially practiced. They say in Tibetan tradition, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Everything is workable. For some things, we need a lot of help, support, and practice for it to be workable, but potentially it's workable. Okay. Thank you, Good. Thank you so much. And we'll do a traditional ending that we uh, maybe can just take for a moment, see what's valuable for you from the evening, something from the talk, discussion, or potentially something that just came up for yourself in the meditation. Many intentions coming out of the evening. And then we end by remembering that we do this practice not just for ourselves, although we do it very much for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the benefits of the evening to all beings. Ultimately for freedom and for love to develop, manifest, be stronger. And also remembering that we are part of all beings. All beings includes us. So, thank you very much. And anyone who wants to continue, I'm actually, I didn't mention that I teach on Wednesday mornings regularly, so perhaps we'll meet each other there or at another venue. So I look forward to continuing our our work together. Thank you.
Testing, testing. Put two mics on them. You can do is put a backup mic up there. That's what I mean. I would. Right. I would just take a, a shotgun mic and leave it down there and wire it yeah, in. Right. Up there. Then we don't have to wear a mic. I know, and that's they don't we should get a nice shotgun, shotgun like I know that's shotgun that's totally like true. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.